Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, it's Rebecca. We're producing this show independently, and that isn't free. If you want to support this podcast, continue life between seasons of Serial and our second season of weekly podcasts for Serial Season 2, please make a donation of one buck or five bucks or ten or more at crimewriterson.com. You can also find links to our books there and leave a comment. And thanks to those of you who've left incredible reviews on iTunes for this podcast. You're making us feel like grown-ups, even helping us get well into the top 100 on the iTunes charts every now and then. Please leave a review if you haven't. It really does make a difference. All right, I guess it's time to enjoy the show. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and you're listening to Crime Writers on Serial. This is a podcast homage podcast about the blockbuster spinoff of This American Life, reporter Sarah Koenig's 12-week look at the conviction of Adnan Syed for the 1999 murder of Hey Min Lee. You know what? This music doesn't seem quite right for this episode. Let's switch it up. I work in radio by day, but in my spare time, I'm a true crime author and have convened a panel of fellow crime writers to talk about Serial, the details of the case and how the story has unfolded, including events that have happened after the end of season one. Last time this merry band got together, we talked about The Intercept's interview with Jay Wilds, and today we'll be talking about that outlet's even more controversial interview with serial prosecutor Kevin Urich, as well as a brand new affidavit by Adnan Syed's potential alibi witness, Asia McLean. It's kind of like the story has turned into an episode of Law and Order. We focused on the victim first, we focused on the crime, the alleged perpetrators, but now the spotlight is on the prosecution. With me to talk about all of this is my partner in crime and co-author Kevin Flynn. Welcome back, Kevin. Rebecca, it's just an honor to be nominated. And joining us in the studio is crime fiction author and perennial devil's advocate, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby. Hi. And joining us remotely today from the studio at the University of New Hampshire is former defense investigator, journalist, and true crime author, Laura Bricker. Hi, Laura. Hello. So the last time we got together, we talked about Natasha Vargas Cooper, formerly now of The Intercept, and her interview with Jay. Since then, there's been a lot of drama around Cooper herself. I just want to make sure everyone here followed that drama, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So on January 7th, The Intercept publishes part one of this blockbuster Yurik interview. Now Natasha has a co-writer, Ken Silverstein, and there's this, I would call it editorial essay um, before 
the interview itself, which caused a lot of controversy. I know that we all have thoughts about that. I'm going to go to Laura first because she's, you know, far away from us, and I want to give her a chance to weigh in on that part of that interview. Laura, what were your reactions when you read that little article, we'll call it, before the first part of the Yurik interview? I just felt like it was just the slant was so negative against Serial. It just turned me off immediately. And the wording, you know, in hopes of finding a miscarriage of justice, like they were immediately trying to cast doubt on everything that Sarah had done. But I found it really ironic that neither of them had even listened to Serial. So how could they even make these judgments? Well, they claim to have not listened to it. That's yes. that, that was yes. also, I think, a, a matter of later debate on Twitter as as somebody posted a tweet of Natasha Vargas Cooper's where she earlier before these interviews had said she had theories about Serial and wanted to discuss them. So that's, I okay. think, debatable. Toby, what did you think about that part of the article? You know, I, I think I, I came at it from the point of view where they're sort of trying to make the prosecutor's case and thinking that Sarah was making the defense case. And, and for some reason, they felt like they had a kind of their uh, mission. It was kind of a sloppy sort of intro. I'll just read a quote. It says, Serial presented an archetype of the wrongful conviction story. The accused is railroaded. The lawyers are corrupt. And the jurors are manipulated by racially charged rhetoric. That just wasn't my that, that, that wasn't the way I saw Serial trying to present this story. So I think right off the bat, they're kind of setting up a straw man. Yeah, I, I didn't I wasn't impressed by it. Well, it, it kind of one of the things that I read and I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that because you sort of touched on a couple of times and we've been talking, the, you know, the ethics of, of Serial and sort of opening of this case and exposing it. And after this Intercept interview, Kevin actually got into a little bit of a debate on Facebook with an unmentioned person who's a very well-respected journalist who we like very much, by the way. Not anymore. <laughs> about uh, what Serial did or didn't accomplish, which is, I don't know what they were trying to do here, but um, the idea that, you know, did Sarah Koenig actually uncover anything new? Kevin, what, what do you think there about, about their taking that, that stance, that, sh- that she was just trying to use this case to tell the same old story and, you know... I, I'm just really troubled by this on a lot of levels, about the writing, about the the judgment. It's funny because last time we were talking about how the the first... Part of this was, you know, the Jay interviews, and it, there wasn't a lot of. It, it was just basically the the transcript of question and answer, and there was no other sort of writing around it. And then, so the pro, this one about the prosecutor comes out, and it's, you know, it's about twenty paragraphs, and it's all polemic. It's it's, it. I mean, I'm just uh, I am nonplussed in the definition of the word. I can go no farther. <laughs> I can handle no more. I'm just. I, I, Befuddled. I just could not believe, and I know we're going to talk about specific things here, but did your question, Rebecca, was did was it journalism? What Sarah was doing? That's I think that's what you were debating on Facebook. Is what Sarah Canning doing? Was it journalism? Yeah, I mean, there's different kinds of journalism, and I think a lot of people look at it from their perspective of like I'm Jeff Rawson and I do NBC investigative reports, and this is how I would do it, or I am. Mike Wallace, or I am, you know, the guy from Fox and Friends, or I'm the local radio morning host. And, you know, everybody kind of comes at it. And I'm not saying that, like, there are different rules. There's certainly different flavors of journalism. Truth, well, I mean, there are some outlets that have really been that. Let's talk about truth then for a second. And, Laura, I'm going to bring you back into this part of the conversation because— one of the huge criticisms of that piece of the Yurik interview 
was the fact that corrections had to be made. The Intercept brought in additional editors to correct that particular copy. They put back in an omitted quote. Um, they had, you know, three big, you know, what Natasha Vargas Cooper called minor, but I think were significant corrections. Laura, you were a newspaper reporter, straight reporting. The sort of ethics and boundaries of journalism, the, the, the rules around the omissions of quotes and how they change context. Did you have a reaction when you heard about and read those corrections? Well, I think it just made me feel like they really were very sloppy the first time they came out of the gate. And I don't know who was watching over them, but it made me feel like maybe they hadn't really had an editor or if they did. The editor didn't pay that much attention to what was going on because it's pretty unusual to have that number of corrections go in. Um, You know, obviously, it's your discretion to include quotes in articles. And, you know, you always have to be very careful not to take things out of context in the way that you present the story. Like I said, it goes back to the slant. Like, I feel like they were slanting things and they got called on it. Right. Well, they were slanting things. They made accusations about Sarah not trying to contact Yurik. I think that that's yes. been well-trod ground. Yeah. And there's a, you know, he says they didn't. They they say they did. I'm sure we all have an opinion as to whether or not Sarah Koenig actually did her due diligence or not. I think the most damning accusation came with this line. Um, the quote is, had Serial accepted the jury's conclusion that Adnan strangled a teenage girl, there would be no storyline, no interest in the case, and hence no audience. So Koenig dismissed the decision of 12 jurors who heard the case, and even though she found nothing that would exonerate Syed, she shifted the burden of proof onto the state. That's sort of accusing her, I think, of making hay out of a story for the sake of growing an audience. It, what's your reaction to that, Toby, when you when you read that, you know, particular kind of, it was a real accusation, I think, that they made. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I read it, and I, I was sort of like, what's the point? Because it's not as though this is the only story. I assume she cast around and was looking for stories where there was some question or there was enough going on that that you could really examine, re-examine the case. So, yeah, of course. I mean, if you're just going to accept the juries, you would never do a story about somebody who's convicted and perhaps wrongfully convicted. So that, again, just like the, the quote I, I read before, it just didn't seem like there were really, there wasn't much of a point there. Right. What do you think, Kevin? And if you're, you're going to call out another journalist, you better bring it. Is what I'm saying, okay? Like, what, what do you mean, total, what do you mean by that? Well, look, if you're going to, you, two things. If you're going to imply, no matter how strongly or veiled, that somebody was unethical, you know, not just sloppy, but really unethical, they didn't like do a good job trying to find the prosecutor. I Googled him and I was able to find him. Like, that's, you know, you had better bring some good stuff because it is easy to knock that down. And you're going to look really, really bad if you can't do that. Second thing, glass houses. Because when someone starts looking at your work, now first of all, you can talk about, oh, she writes a hit piece about how serial is a hit piece, okay? And then she does this thing with this quote, which I think is the most actionable thing in the piece. Do you want to just clarify what the quote is that you're talking about? Yeah, because uh, she said, you know, they did not make multiple attempts to reach me. They never showed up at my office. And then they deleted this line from the original quote. They may have left a voicemail that I didn't return, but I'm not sure of that. Now, what that says is the writers are trying to say Sarah Cannon didn't do a great job trying to reach the prosecutor and deletes the quote 
that either A, shows they did their due diligence, and B, that it was the prosecutor who was unwilling or unenthusiastic about returning the call. That changes not only the tenor of that whole quote, it undermines the spine of this story that, oh, Sarah Kane and like really didn't really care what this prosecutor had to say. By the way, I will say as, as a, a journalist, if I'm talking about three prosecutor, prosecutorial team, I talk to two of them and they say, we're not allowed to talk about this. And if I don't hear back from the third one, I'm pretty much assuming that the third one is also in the same position and is not going to talk. I'll make an effort. I'm not going to get in a plane and fly down to goddamn uh, Baltimore and have the guy slam his door in my face because he has. She, she needs to verify the quote from some other guy that he yelled at him during trial in 1999. I mean, it's ridiculous. What are you going to say, Toby? I see you're sort of like had a finger up there for a second. Oh, I, well, I just... He's calling security. He yeah. says, can Flynn be removed from the studio? <laughs> That's right. This guy's getting crazy. Um, God, I'm not in there. <laughs> you know, I think, unfortunately, I think this kind of editing isn't, isn't that unusual in journalism. There's all kinds of examples. I was just thinking back to, I think it was the last election cycle... I believe it was Bill Clinton was giving a speech and he said something about he was talking about climate change in the economy. And he said, it's not as if we have to stop the economy to address climate change. And that was then edited to we have to stop the economy to address climate change. So they they completely reverse that statement. So I think certainly they should not have edited it that way. But I think it's, it's not uncommon for people to do things like that if it helps their story. You know, when when that correction was made, I was like, oh, all right, you know. Did it undermine the uh, Jay interview for you? Because you were the only one sort of among us who I was like bought a little bit more into sort of what Jay was saying in the Jay interview. Did you feel like that interview was also undermined by this incident? I, I don't know. I, I think, again, bo- both of these are, are such, they're sort of transcript interviews in that the, it doesn't really seem like either Jay or Kevin York is really brought to the mat on anything. It's kind of questions and then they answer and there's not a whole lot of pushing on it. You know, it's clear that they have an agenda, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't know if having an agenda necessarily means that you can't trust anything unless they're really being malicious and they're willing to just change entire interviews. I mean, I, I think you can buy most of what they say in part because, you know, what Yurik and what Jay say aren't so clearly helpful to their own causes. You know, I mean, if, if I was doing it and I was trying to mold it so that it was the the biggest indictment of serial that I could get, what, what they presented was certainly not what I would have ended up with. Okay. So, uh, Laura, I have a... Um what could be perceived, and I apologize in advance if it is, as a sexist question that I'm going to ask you woman to woman. <laughs> Natasha Vargas Cooper's um, behavior toward her readers on Twitter and sort of the attitude that she put on display of dismissive, sometimes crude kind of responding to critics. She later sort of made an argument that she was just being attacked because, you know, she was a woman. And, you know, you could sort of say Sarah Koenig is also a woman. So do do you think does it shift sort of the perception of a journalist when they don't show let's just call it respect to their readers and to their critics in a space like Twitter. Does it matter to you? I think it does. I think she just came across as very immature and unprofessional and crude. And um, it just didn't come across to me as a serious journalist in the way that she was responding to people. That's not how you see anybody. I mean, I, I haven't seen anybody in her position respond like that. I mean, she was just so snarky. 
um, it, it made me not take seriously what she was saying. Let's move on from Natasha. She's moved on from the intercept to Jezebel, so let's move on from her. And... I mean, that's, that says a lot. Yeah. It says a lot that, about the delay from part one to part two. Right. And it definitely shows, you know, that the editors were as troubled with that first piece by Natasha Vargas Cooper and Ken Silverstein. And, and I don't know what role Silverstein played in the in the uh, the Jay interviews, but he's the additional writing variable here. Mm-hmm. And the two of them were nuts on Twitter. The other thing that she, Natasha was doing was calling out her own editors. Right. And, you know, is anybody surprised? Like, you would doctor a, a quote, you'd throw down the gauntlet like that, and then you would badmouth your editors. And, and your employer. And your employer. Yeah. And then you would suddenly resign. <laughs> Okay. And you can't see the air quotes I'm making, but I'm calling out a res- resignation. <laughs> she went on to a better opportunity. A better opportunity. Kevin. She wanted to spend more time with her family. You know, it just it, she may have a couple of like really great, you know, bylines and some big magazines, but she's, you know, she hasn't paid her dues yet, and maybe this is her paying her dues. Well, well I guess time will tell. All right, well, yeah. let's move on to the subject. She needs to go cover some city council meetings okay. before she starts writing for the. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. Kevin Flynn uh, is thrown down the gauntlet with Natasha Vargas Cooper. Yeah, she's probably saying, who the hell is this Kevin Flynn? And I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, guilty. <laughs> okay, Toby, so let's move on to the substance of uh, the Yurik interview. Let's move on to what he actually had to say. Take presentation out of the mix right now. Um, so he was asked about the situation with Jay and the lawyer, and he re- sort of recast that issue a bit. Um, tell me what your reaction was to that. Yeah, I thought it was pretty lame um, in that he basically says... Usually when people attack the government, they attack them because we're, we're denying somebody's rights. And, and now I'm being attacked for, you know, ensuring his rights. And I don't think anybody's attacking him for ensuring Jay's rights. I think the, the problem is that there's an appearance that, that there was a quid pro quo or he was at least looking after Jay by providing him with a lawyer uh, when he's when he's the the state's big witness, so a lot of the Yurik interview seemed to me fairly reasonable. That right there seemed like he either doesn't understand what the problem is, or he thinks this is a way to deflect it, and it, it's it's not very effective in my opinion. What what did you think of that, Laura? And then I'm going to ask you about something else that you pointed out um, in the interview. What did you think about his explanation of? Providing Jay with the lawyer. Uh, that was that was pretty thin, and in my opinion, I mean, obviously he's looking out for his witness. This is what he has that's going to bring his case to trial, and from where he's standing, this is his favorable outcome. So he doesn't want anything to go in there that's going to call into question how this witness was handled and jeopardize that. I mean, you see this all the time in cases where, you know, you may have a homicide client, you know. Um, individual, somebody that's charged, going to be charged with a homicide and they want to start talking or whatever. But, you know, if that happens, the whole confession could be challenged. So they want to make sure they get an attorney down there in certain cases so that they can't question that. Um, You know, I think he was just looking out for his case and that's pretty reasonable given his position. And uh, you you actually mentioned something else that I don't really understand. I mean, your work as a defense investigator, you, you sort of have uh, a more background on this than I do. Uh, he talked about open file discovery. What was he claiming, and what is that? What did that mean? I'm not so familiar with open file discovery. Here in New Hampshire, where we are, we have reciprocal discovery, and um, in cases, um, you know, the prosecution has an obligation to turn over to the defense any information that they are going to use in presenting their case to trial. Um, so if there's information that th- maybe they have a witness they talk to and they're not going to call as a witness at the trial, 
they don't necessarily have to turn that over. You know, it depends on the type of prosecutor you have. I mean, there's some prosecutors that, you know, they're doing their job, but they're also fairly ethical people, and they're going to turn over everything that they have to the defense to create a fair trial. And then there's some that, you know, for whatever reason, perhaps hold information back until the last minute or, oh, I lost it. I'm trying to make a copy or whatever excuse they have as to why they're not giving you all the information. Um, I was skeptical of open file discovery. I've just not seen that here in New Hampshire. Um, It's not necessarily everything they have. It's what they're going to use at trial. So basically what you're saying is that it would have been the norm for them to just not proactively share anything that uh, serve to undermine their case in any way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, because they're not going to call that person or that or present that information at trial if it's not helpful to their case. Um, and if they're not going to present it, they don't need to turn it over. Well, it, it's funny because I, I happen to be reading a, a book about the uh, Jeffrey McDonald. Fatal Vision? Yeah, Fatal yeah. Vision. Merged, it's actually called A Wilderness of Error. And they do talk about that open discovery. And uh, at least according to this book, if the prosecutors have exculpatory evidence, they are supposed to share that with the defense. And that was one of the issues. In other words, if the uh, phone timeline didn't jive with what someone had said in an interview, that's something that they should share and then provide an explanation for why that testimony then changed to fit the phone timeline that they were presenting. Is that is that kind of the example that you're thinking of from the from the, from Syed's case or a different example of, of... No, I think that's a, that's a fine example. But I mean, I think the idea is that the prosecutor can't find exculpatory evidence and then just sit on it. That's supposed to be shared in open discovery. But that's, that, as Laura said, isn't the case like in all states. But what I was going to say is that doesn't always happen. I can think of countless cases that I worked on where I had a witness that had helpful information to the defense's case and I went out to interview them and they had already spoken to a investigator from whatever prosecutor's office was handling the case. We had no knowledge of that information. And so I would conduct my interview and write a report, and the other side would pretend they had no knowledge of this witness's testimony. So it does happen. Well, that, that kind of comes into play with the Asia affidavit, which we'll talk about in a minute. I just I want to stay on one, Kevin York for one minute, though, because um, one of the things that I know you reacted to very viscerally, Kevin, was when Yurik... Uh, described this case as a, quote, run-of-the-mill domestic violence case. That that didn't sit well with you, I think, in terms of just, like, the description of uh, of what well, happened, right? I, yeah, I, don't, I, I think I was kind of puzzled by that, but I thought it was also enlightening. I mean, there are a lot of people who are, you know, pro-Adnan and anti-Adnan, you know, in Sarah's journey here, you know, people who were, like, you know, on either side looking at this. But um, when... Uh, she talked to them, you know, in the end said, you know, are there a lot of holes in this case? And yeah, this case was very different. Even the people who think, yeah, Adnan, dead to rights, he did it. There's still a lot of holes in this investigation. And so for Yurik to say this was a run-of-the-mill domestic violence case leads me to believe, if he's being sincere in his saying that, that he didn't really grasp the complexity of what really went on and maybe colored his... The complexity of what really went on at the time or the complexity of what was happening right now with the renewed interest in the case? Oh, no, at the time. Okay. At the time. I mean, if that was his memory of this, was this was just, this is just another run-of-the-mill case and I've got 10 more like this and it, it fits a, you know, a cookie-cutter pattern where when we look at it in retrospect, at the time, you should have realized there was something more to it, either other problems with the case or whatever. I mean, run-of-the-mill does not seem like a way to describe this case. 
I mean, if it is, then Sarah Koenig is Jesus and has, you know, multiplied the fishes and bread of, out of a run-of-a-mill case and made 12 hours out of it. Well, as we, and we've brought up before, getting the Innocence Project involved is a big burden. You have a big burden of proof there to get them involved that it's more than just what was presented. Now, Toby, Yurik's memory seems absolutely rock solid. I mean, he talks, and if and he did a recent interview on a Sirius satellite radio, which I'll post on our website, crimewriterson.com, on this episode. He talks about this in this interview and in that interview like it happened last week. It seems like rock solid. And he seems to really rely on the memories of other people as well, sort of, you know, the you know, he sort of trusts Jay's details and discounts others. Like, what is your take on this whole thing about you know, him coming out so strong and, and seeming to his, mem- his memory so intact about this particular case. Everybody's memory in, in this, I think, is, is a little bit suspect. And I think depending on, you know, what you're trying to support or what you're trying to impeach, you put more or less emphasis on people's inconsistencies in their memory. You know, there's a lot brought up in Serial about the inconsistencies with, with Jay's memory. And I know that after Jay's interview with The Intercept, that there was a lot on Twitter, I guess, from some of Ednan's supporters about how, you know, once again, he tells a different story. We got to take this back to trial. He's clearly lying. And then on the other hand, you have Yurik, who who says, well, you know, the, the basic story has always been there with Jay, and that it's not surprising that the details change. But then at the same time, when he's talking about Asia McLean and why he didn't think that was important, he said, well, she was saying that she talked to him in the library. And Adnan has never said he was in the library, he said he was at school, so it just didn't seem material. I think there's a lot of stuff in Serial having to do with memory, and I, and I think that's one of the things that Sarah teases at the very, very beginning of the first episode where she's asking people to remember what they did like a week ago or something, and that kind of drops after that. I mean, she kind of sets that up as potentially being a problem with the investigation. It doesn't get brought up again. But there's, you know, there's a lot of research and evidence that, especially as time goes on, and the more you retell or, or relive a memory, it changes in, in that it, the process of retelling something, you change it, and then that becomes your new memory. And it's very hard to find the original memory. It, it, it's what makes it kind of hard to feel very strongly one way or the other about a lot of these issues. Kevin, did you have something you wanted to say? You know, Kevin Yurick here um, may be acting as his own lawyer in the sense that he's not a big focus of Serial, but the few times he has popped up... He uh, is now, I would argue. Sure, okay. But let's talk about... <laughs> there are numerous articles in the paper right now in The Guardian, in The New York Times, about Kevin Yurick's potential... I, I want to stress, I'm saying potential prosecutorial misconduct. Well, that's that's really where it comes up. In the few times that we've heard, within, we'll keep it within Serial, and what Sarah Canning did, it was in the tale of some sort of odd or malicious behavior. In episode one, it's uh, Asia and whether or not she should uh, testify and his... Uh, presentation to the uh, appellate judge about, well, she really didn't, whatever, blah, blah, blah. In episode uh, 12, it's him yelling at Don. Yeah, you know, Don, and then there's the getting of the... Every time we, Kevin Yurick is brought up, it's it's around some sort of questionable behavior. The most damning one I th- would have thought would have been the getting the other attorney. I don't know if there was ever a professional conduct complaint made against that. I don't know why nothing came of that. Maybe it, you know, ethically is okay. 
he has still has himself to watch out for. Right. I mean, he may not be a prosecutor. That's his stake in this, is what you're his saying. His stake is not, not just his professional reputation, it's his law license. Right. So saying, so saying I don't remember wouldn't serve him well at this point is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. You know, I'm not thinking he's doing it like for PR, but I mean, I really think I mean, if, if Kevin Yurick had Kevin Yurick as a client, Mm-hmm. The lawyer would say, "Don't incriminate yourself. Don't say something stupid. You, you know, everything was done by the book." As a writer, again, if we want to have the tale that Adnan is railroaded by the system, how would you uh, demonstrate that in the story? Is the face of the system would be the crooked prosecutor, right. right? And and so there's your archetype right there. So you're saying that like in the movie of this, if this were fiction, the, the prosecutor would be a Mickey Rourke or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody kind of greasy and, you know, you'd yeah. see willing to do whatever. And, you know, he's the one playing fast and loose. And that's right. In the movie version, that's that's how you would have that character. Okay. But to be real, we know this is real life, correct? This okay. is real life. All right. So, Laura, speaking of real life, uh, this week, Asia McLean, brand new affidavit, the story broken of all places in The Blaze. I don't know if you guys know know this. That's an outlet owned by Glenn Beck. Finally, we get a couple of explanations why it seemed she was, you know, maybe dodging Sarah, an explanation for that so-called recanting of her testimony. Your reaction to Asia's claim that Yurik talked her out of testifying. Um, Laura, this is something that you said you, you saw, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've seen prosecutors talk people out of testifying. Um, what I've had experience with, one of the things that I did as a defense investigator was Um, prepare witnesses for trial by subpoenaing them to trial to appear. And oftentimes, um, if there was a witness that was on both the state and the defense witness list, I would subpoena them as well. Um, Because if it was a witness that had helpful information for the defense, the prosecutor may say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to call you as a witness at the last minute as the trial was going on. And I had that happen several times where our witness would have been dismissed and we're like, where's the witness? Oh, the prosecutor said, I don't need to be here anymore. So in my case, you know, we would always sort of, you know, go that extra step to make sure that the person was going to be there. And I think it just comes down to as the case is playing out in court and looking at who's saying what and how it's helping each side of the case. If the prosecutor is seeing someone that is not going to say something helpful or if, you know, the defense has now given them um, a report based on an interview with this witness that has helpful information for the defense, they may say, you know, we're not going to call that person. Um, So I'd say they're not, I haven't seen people intimidated out of testifying, but more so just, oh, no, you know, kind of brushed off, like, no, no, you don't need to be here. We're all set type situations. Laura, have you ever worked with the defense office on an appeal like the one in which Asia's testimony was supposedly recanted as it was in this case? No, but I, I have prepared a lot of affidavits in cases. And this was the most bizarre, kind of unprofessional affidavit I've seen. I mean, when I prepared affidavits for cases, you had to really make it sound professional and clear and concise and to the point. And I felt like some of the wording in this one, like Adnan was calm and caring and her explanations for things. And uh, it just... It was a little bit too conversational. It, it just it didn't match up with the tone of a court document to me. Would you say that it sounded more like it was responding to the podcast than to the legal case? Yes. That's sort of how I felt about yeah. it, too. I, I'd love to hear. Have you guys read the affidavit? Yeah. I mean, I, I there didn't seem to be anything sort of that jumped out at me other than, of course, like the headline, which is that she disputes what Kevin Urich said, that she said, I didn't recant. I, I didn't recant my my testimony or my potential testimony. I would have, if I, you know, knowing what I know now, I would have appeared at the trial and I would have appeared at that appeals hearing. 
you know, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that will spin wheels. It seems like a lot of people wanted to, like, you know, who are connected to this case and they just realize sort of the importance it is now want to, for the sake of justice or for their own ego, they want to make sure that they're on the record and they're they're good with it. And I think Asia's like, okay, this is what I can do. And if she's still like that same 15-year-old girl is like, hey, man, you know, uh, hope, you know, my smelly feet didn't really uh, bother your, your, your friends too much, okay? And you better be guilty or I'll whip your ass, whatever she said, you know, it's... Uh, you better not be guilty. You better not be guilty. Toby, I have a question for you because I think that we've all, we all sort of agree that the state's timeline is is just sort of baloney in terms of, you know, when Hay was killed, you know, with the cell records, with, you know, the Nisha call, that it just doesn't match up to what probably happened no matter who did it. And I know that, you know, you have leaned toward the Occam's razor. It was probably Adnan point of view. Given that the state's timeline, we kind of all agree, I think, doesn't hold water, Asia's affidavit is really about procedure, not about truth in terms of exonerating. I mean, does it matter to you from from, from your perspective and how you feel about what probably happened? Does this affidavit matter in shifting the way you feel at all, is, is I guess what I'm asking. The whole thing seems a little strange to me. Unless I'm missing something... She doesn't seem like she was sort of intimidated into anything. It sounds like they both basically say that she went to Yurik and said, I, I've got this thing to say. How, how strong is your case? And he said, well, it's pretty strong. And she was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I won't do anything. And she claims not to know that the, the actual time, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure she's right, that, that the actual time when she was talking to him wasn't that important, that what she was, I guess, mostly trying to get across is that you know, he's super sensitive or something. But that whole little bit about him seeming extremely calm and caring, that seemed really off. And I, it seemed like one of two things to me. It seemed either she she kind of felt that way about him and was it was thereby, you know, sort of slanting the conversation. It's, oh, we, we just talked about how much he really still loved Hay and really wanted her to be happy. Either that or Adnan was completely flirting with her and was trying to come off as like the sensitive guy in case he wants to ask her out later. So um, <laughs> it, it didn't – the whole Asia McLean thing, I think it was interesting as sort of a subplot and, and interesting to see what happened with her. But as far as how it impacts like the entire case, I mean, it, 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 at least in my mind, it doesn't have much to do with anything. It could affect the legal procedure but not the way that you sort of are leaning or the way that you feel or your, what your instincts tell you. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't throw it into the hopper and come out with it different conclusion. Okay. What were you going to say, Kevin? Well, I was thinking two things about Asia. One is that, it, you know, as far, as far as her timeline goes, she apparently talked to Yurik and was discouraged or talked out of coming to the appeal. And it wasn't until she heard Sarah Kanian explain uh, the importance of her story, the timing of her story in relation to the state's case, that she was fully aware oh, I actually do have something valuable here. I'm not just like somebody who saw him earlier in the day. I apparently was with him at the time of the alleged murder. And then that motivates her to move forward. But also the second thing, like you said, I don't think that we can really say that that, that 2.36 in the afternoon was the time that Hay died by Adnan's hand or anyone else's. I mean, certainly it just doesn't – with all the cell phone stuff, that whole timeline just does not seem to hold. So therefore – Asia's alibi may be solid for that time, but not exculpatory because 
that might not have been when the crime actually happened. I think that we are ready now to respond to some listeners, uh, maybe a Redditor or two. Um, I have a question for each of the four of us from, from people who've been listening to this podcast who want to address things that we've talked about about the case, that we've talked about about the podcast to us specifically. Are you guys all game for that? Sure. Is one of them I am Cornholio? <laughs> I'm sorry, Cornholio has not. Uh, maybe Corn. Maybe Cornholio's real name is Selena, Heather, or Brittany. I don't know, but there's no Cornholio on this list. I promise. Okay, so my first uh, question is for. I guess we'll go to you, Laura, first, because this is something that I think you would be able to answer better than anybody else. And it is from uh, a listener named April, and she says, "If I have one critique of Serial and all the coverage then and now is its shocking lack of coverage and theory on victimology. What's so fascinating?" is that legally Syed may himself be a victim of shallow defense and possible witness tampering, but victimology may strongly indicate that the only person who could have had access to the interior of Hayes' car and given the intimate proximity to allow for strangulation is Syed. What is your reaction to that? I don't know a lot about victimology. I'm guessing you know a little bit more about it than I do, Laura. So I am asking you this question. Oh, boy. The cases I've dealt with, I've dealt with a lot of domestic violence cases and more so seeing that cycle of, you know, calling the police, getting someone arrested a few days later, recanting their story, going back to them, and the cycle begins again. And it's just that victim mentality that people can't get out of. I mean, it does certainly make sense in this case that, Um, Adnan would have been the one that had access to a car. But then you've also got um, Mr. Lenscrafter, who would have had access to her car. Um, In terms of Adnan being a victim, you know, I think this does shed. I mean, I've talked to different attorneys about this podcast, and people are saying, you know, this does shed light on the justice system and how it could go one way or another. And here had Adnan had an attorney that maybe... Um, presented a little bit different case or did a little bit more digging into things, the outcome could have been different. So in that sense, uh, you know, he was a victim of his circumstances, I guess. Okay. Well, victimology, if I can just jump in, I mean, so is sort of the study of the victim and what role he or she played in being the victim of the crime. Not, so, it's not victim blaming. No, Don't, it's not victim blaming, but it's a, it's, a, it's a look at, okay, why was this person the victim? Right. Um, you know, like if you were mugged, but the person as opposed to the person behind you, why were you targeted? And also, what role did you play in that crime? You chose to go for a walk at midnight. Right. I mean, that's that's you know, that's not a uh, put you on the stand and blame you. This is a an academic study of why you are the victim and she wasn't. Um, and so it's like, well, why get the question? Why would somebody want to kill Hay? It's basically what it comes down to. Why is Hay the victim and not? Uh, a, a random guy or or not Kathy, not Kathy, you know, and then it also what role did Hay play in getting herself killed that so day? It's not she motive. got she let someone. No, it's not motive. It's, it's circumstance. It's sort of the yes, it's sort of the reverse of that. It's like what ended up, you know, what were the what was the, the opportunity and the means for this person to be victimized? Okay. Did she let somebody into her car that she shouldn't have? Was she in a relationship that she shouldn't have been into? Was she dealing drugs on the side? You know, that kind of thing. Did it have to be her or could it have been the next girl who came along in a car that she picked up, a hitchhiker? You know, this is the kind of thing. And it answers a lot. If you answer the question, which no one really has, well, I mean, if you answer the the, the question of why did Hay have to die, it leads back to 
who the killer would be in motive. So my next question is for you, Kevin, since you're on a roll. Mm -hmm. This is from uh, a Redditor, actually, and it wasn't asked directly to us, but I think it's a really interesting point. And I know you have interviewed a lot of prosecutors for our books, so I think you'd be able to answer it. Uh, It's from a Redditor called, you're going to enjoy this name, Cereal for Every Meal. I was thinking about Yurik's behavior last night. Something I learned yesterday that I hadn't known before is how heavy his caseload was. He was working really hard, probably had a lot on his plate. I'm sure the thought never crossed his mind that in 16 years he would be answering for, quote, leaning on certain witnesses. Yurik strikes me as a pretty cocky guy, and you'd have to be to get through all those cases. You'd have to pick a side and stick with it. Otherwise, you wouldn't get anything closed. This was probably run-of-the-mill for him because he didn't do anything differently in this case than he'd done a 100 other times. If we took a good look into his other cases, I wonder what we'd find. Does this jive with your experience interviewing, dealing with, reporting on prosecutors? Well, I I wouldn't say the prosecutors I've talked to were flip or didn't take their job seriously. I think the caseload um, for a homicide prosecutor in a small state like New Hampshire is different than for one in Baltimore County. And we've seen this an awful lot about the way the system works there. I love to quote David Simon, who wrote extensively about crime in Baltimore. You know, you, most people know him as the, the writer of The Wire. And his famous quote is he called Baltimore the home of the misdemeanor homicide, which meant that, you know, he looked at one year, more than half of the arrests made in uh, homicide cases in that year, uh, those people never served any time because, boom, it, it, is, a, it, it is a machine. So, his caseload, Yerkes was probably very heavy. You know, is that maybe why he was very um, eager and willing to accept the detective's explanation when he got the case that this is a run-of-the-mill domestic case? Uh, probably. Does he expect 16 years later to be answering questions about it? If so, it's because somebody like uh, Rebecca or I are asking, because we want to write a book about what a great job he did. Right. And probably not coming back and saying, you know, why did you yell at, uh, you know, the the boyfriend during his testimony because you didn't make, you, you know, I don't think he would have been, been expecting that. So, Kevin, you and I are working on a book right now. And um, I actually have, I I raised the other day a little bit of an issue I had with the prosecutors in the case and and them using a piece of testimony that I think was a dubious piece of testimony. I don't know. I'm not making an accusation. And we had a very quick conversation about like, oh, no, we're not we're not going to write that. But it's certainly something worth sort of poking around and, and understanding a little bit better. I guess there is a thing, and Laura, I don't know how you feel about this. Like most of us who write about crime, we don't want to go up against the prosecutor who put the guy away, right? Isn't that sort of like the part of the code of writing crime? Unless we're doing an investigative piece about the system. If we're writing about a crime, we're exploring a crime, like that's not a person. No, I mean, I, I don't think unless you have, I mean, you can feel like maybe they're wrong. But if you don't have any evidence of that, or then then you wouldn't want to accuse. But isn't it your experience that they always stick with, like, they're like, their memory is, and we, we got the right guy. We did the right thing. We did it absolutely. I mean, we talked to a prosecutor yeah. yesterday who talked about a case he, a famous case, very famous case he tried in the 90s, and he has, his memory has not changed in iota. He would not question that outcome at all. Laura, is that your experience, that, that that's sort of the attitude of the prosecutor? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, that's their job, and they don't want to certainly... Uh, you know, call into question anything they've done after the fact. Um, But that, you know, I think that when you're a prosecutor, you have a certain mindset and you have a certain approach and they believe that they got the right person there. So Toby, it is time to ask you the question from a uh, listener that we have here. And it is very specifically addressed toward you. Are you ready? I think so. It is not about, uh, will you spoil the plot of another television show? (laughs) Okay. This is from a listener, Julie. 
Toby cites Occam's razor to say Adnan probably committed the crime. I say the only guy who can lead cops to Hayes' ditched car is the obvious and most simple candidate for murderer, especially as Jay spent countless hours with detectives workshopping a narrative that could frame Adnan. You'd think a fiction writer of all people would understand, well, fiction, when he encounters it. (laughs) Would you like to respond with your uh, counter theory, perhaps, uh, about why the Occam's razor thing holds true for you in this case? Yeah, well, well, I I think the the simplest explanation is that that he helped it non. I mean I, I think the simplest explanation is essentially what he put forward and and I guess her counter argument would be, well of course you know if you spend all this time you like come up with with a fairly simple story because that those are the most effective stories about how it was actually a non and not you. But again I mean I I think there's there's just enough other stuff going on that you have to explain what was Adnan doing with Jay during that time if he wasn't involved. So, yeah, I get I get what she's saying. And, I, I you know, having checked out Reddit and, and some comments, you know, actually on our podcast, you know, people feel fairly strongly that, that, that they know, I mean, certainly much more than I do, that they know what the story is. I guess I really don't feel like I have a real strong feeling about what actually happened. But that, to me, it does seem like the spine of Jay's story seems to me to be the easiest to kind of assimilate with, with, with all the facts that the, we have. The one thing I would say that sort of supports that, even though I've sort of, you know, admittedly I'm sort of in the I want Adnan to be innocent camp, is that it is much more difficult to frame somebody else for a crime than it is just to say, you know, I don't know what happened. I mean, it's I mean, it's it's a lot more complicated to frame to 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 frame somebody else that wasn't involved than to frame somebody else that was involved less than you're saying they. Were. I mean, it's it's a more difficult proposition. I, I think so, and I think part of it, at least, if if I try and put myself in in Jay's mind, in the mind of the prosecutors, if there was sort of this conspiracy to frame Adnan, is that. You, you you don't want it to be exposed to a whole lot of scrutiny. And now that Sarah spent a year looking into it and, you know, she's she's kind of attacked it at the edges and things like that. But there hasn't been sort of the unsmoking gun to say, well, no, actually, it's, it's quite clear that he's that he's innocent. Again, you know, I don't feel like I can say very definitively one way or the other based on what we've heard in the podcast about, about his innocence or not, but based on what, what has been said, I would tend to think it basically went down the way Jay said. But the problem with if you believe that Jay is the killer is that on the morning, Jay is in Adnan's car and Hay is in her car, and then you would have to believe that Jay would know where Hay was. So there would have to come somehow be a rendezvous point. Right. And this is this is very. I mean, and if we look at the phone records, then you either have to believe that Jay had some knowledge of where Hay was going to go, right? So to kill her, and it seems like it, it, everything else reads like it was a spur of the moment thing. I would recommend something very strongly to those of you listening who haven't read it. I'm guessing most of you have, and to everyone in this room, check out Susan Simpson's blog on Serial. It's at um, I put a link to it at CrimeWritersOn.com. It's called The View from LL2. She's a lawyer. She has lined up the cell records and the testimony and the interviews in a way that basically debunks the state's narrative completely. It doesn't say whether or not Jay or Adnan killed Hay, but it com- it completely tears apart the timeline. It supports a lot of the things you've been complaining about, Kevin. So I would check out that link. Toby, one more. You want to say something else? Uh, just the last thing I was going to say uh, about the prosecutorial load in Baltimore around 99. I, I lived in D.C., 
in the 90s. And, you know, it's the same basic region. And uh, I was part of the juror pool in, in D.C. Uh, myself and my friends, like you got called for a year and then you had a year off and then you get called the next year. You were never skipped over. Like you were always called. There were so many cases that were going on. Did you go, go up to the judge and say, I need to be excused because my uncle is uh, in jail as a bootlegger or something like that? Did yeah, you get, of course. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that we've sort of thoroughly looked into the Yurik interview, thoroughly looked, uh, examined Natasha Vargas Cooper's scandalous uh, tweeting and so forth. I'd like to move on to one little uh, last bit of content before we end this podcast. A new segment I'd like to debut, a little something I like to call Crime of the Week. This episode's Crime of the Week, not a crime really necessarily, unless, of course, you're from Indianapolis. I would like you each to react, what are your thoughts in one sentence or so? Deflate gate. Kevin, go. Okay, saying that it is right now 9:38 a.m. on the Friday be- week before the Super Bowl because when somebody listens to this it's going to be way after the fact and they're going to either think I was really smart or really stupid. Okay, my take on it, it's not so much about why, it is to me about how. I am more consumed with how uh, than why or who. Even after hearing all about the... It's a chain of custody thing. I don't see, you know... So is every doping slash cheating scandal in the history of sports. It's always turns into a a very elaborate... Is this my sentence or your sentence? Okay, sorry. Didn't mean to go. Okay, Toby, (laughs) deflate gate. Thoughts? Uh, I'm not a Pats fan, and uh, so I'll say that right ahead. But it seems like uh, the, the history with the Pats is that they... They really push the envelope quite a bit, and I think sometimes when you push the envelope, you push right through it. It, it seems like if there were other factors involved, it would have affected the Colts' balls too. But are, are you saying that the Pats are the like sort of like the Kevin Urick of the NFL? Oh no, they're not that bad. <laughs> it, well, I, my passions are getting <laughs> no, but I, I just I, I you know I, I think the Pats you know are you know you can look at them as being innovative or you can look at them as being somewhat underhanded but they you know they find ways even against the Colts where they're doing these sort of unusual formations and declaring receivers eligible and stuff I mean that's that, that's the way they operate and I think sometimes it, it they go a little bit further than than the rules allow and most of the time that it, it, it isn't the problem all right Laura I don't know how you feel about deflate gate but it is your chance to weigh and go deflate gate well- Deflake it. I, I am the odd man out here, odd woman out. I really could care less about football, uh, but I do make snacks. Um, so maybe this will give me some incentive to find some fun recipes on Pinterest, like deflate balls or something. I'm not sure. All right. Well, I think that that, you know, we will find out what the story is here, I think, eventually, or at least we'll find out the NFL's version of the story, I think, eventually. But we know we have endless possibilities for more developments in this story and, of course, in the serial story yet to come. We know that the, we're going to get some news about the appeal soon, potentially. Laura, thank you so much for connecting with us from across the state today. Thank you for having me. And Toby Ball, thank you for joining us with your special brand of intuition. We always appreciate it. Thanks. And Kevin Flynn, as always, thank you for being you. Uh, Well, I can't be anyone else. You can find links to more about all the crime writers, including new about pages about Toby and Laura, and links to all of our books at our website. The address is crimewriterson.com. You can also hear all of the episodes we've recorded. Find my email address if you want to send me a note. And yes, that little donate button. Please consider chipping in just a few bucks so we can keep putting the show together and produce a second season of weekly podcasts to pay homage to Serial Season 2. 
Thanks so much for listening. For the great reviews you've left on iTunes, keep them coming. Thank you to the thousands of you who have subscribed. We really can't believe it. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers on Serial. We will catch up with you later. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.